Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Some weeks back, we started out on the series of the Minor Prophets. And we started on the book of Joel, part 1, where we dealt with chapter 1 and 2. How many of you are part of that? Okay, most of you were there. Do you remember what was preached on? If you don't, you're still forgiven. Your punishment is go back and listen again. And if you are here and you are not part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one because that was the starting of the series on the Minor Prophets. So I gave an introduction of the entire Old Testament, how to interpret the prophetic books. And in that context, we brought in the book of Joel and we were able to do only chapter one and two last time. So I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to that. So I'm continuing on the same series of the prodigal nation and purpose future, part two from the book of Joel. Prodigal nation and a purposeful future. In the last time, I just want to do a quick recap for the benefit of those of us who lost memory of what we heard. And uh, just for us to align back into the context. So let's do this recap. In chapter one, we looked at Complete destruction. A complete destruction that happens because of the locusts coming. And Joel is reminding people of what happened in the past and how the locusts came. And they ate away everything that was in the land to the point, Joel concludes, the joy in the land had disappeared. It had been taken away. And then he moves on to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's talking about another destruction that's coming. And this time the destruction is not from the locusts, but he's likening the locusts and he's talking about an army that's going to come. The army before whom he says, the land is like the Eden of Garden and behind them is a desolate land. Such fierce army that's going to come and destroy everything that is there in Judah. And this is the kind of uh, prophecy he brings. But in the midst of talking about the army, he gives them a call for repentance. And he says, repent. If you truly repent, and he uses this phrase which is very famous, which is from the book of Joel, rend your heart and not your garments, signifying your repentance truly needs to be from the heart. And then he says, God may relent based on your repentance and how he will forgive. Then he brings promises in chapter 2 of how God will restore physical blessing, social blessing, and spiritual blessing. And the biggest blessing, two blessings that he talks about, one he says, the years the locusts have eaten, God will restore it. And the second thing is a prophetic word that gets fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, where he says, in those days the Lord will pour out his spirit, and he will pour it out on sons and daughters, maidservants and females, uh, men servants. He will pour it on the young and the old. So there's no discrimination. The Spirit of God will be poured out on all of us. So this is, the, this is a short recap of what we did in the, in the last one, one and two chapter in the last session of the book of Joel. You know, when I, when I travel, whenever I'm going out of town, and when I call home, there's one consistent question my children ask me, both Irene and Ezekiel. And the question is, when are you coming back? And when I tell them I'm coming back on Monday, the question would be, when, morning or evening? 
When I say evening, they'll ask, will you come before we sleep or after we sleep? <laughs> and when I land in the airport, what time will you land? When I land in the airport, sure enough, I'll get a call. To an extent, my son will go online and track the flight. And when I call him, he'll say, I know your flight was delayed by one hour because he's already seen it online. And you know, the, the anticipation with which they wait for me. And also, during the summer holidays, they were at home. When I go to work, I have this habit that sometimes I call back home to say I've reached, home, reached office. When I call, guess what's the first question? When are you coming in the evening? <laughs> you know, the first question, and based on when I tell I'm coming, they plan their entire day accordingly, and they plan the activities for the evening. You know, when I was thinking about this, I asked myself a question. How much are we as Christians living in anticipation of the Lord's coming? Are we able to order our lives in such a manner that we are every day waiting and saying, Lord, will today be the day that you will come? And if God of each of us understand that this evening will be when the Lord comes, how will our day be? How will our lives be? How will our bank account look? How will our schedule look? It looks so different when we live in the anticipation of the Lord's coming. We're going to deal a little bit about the Lord's coming towards the end. Not into detail, but a little bit I will touch. Because Joel talks about the day of the Lord. And we will look at day of the Lord. So let's jump straight into chapter 3 of the book of Joel. Chapter 3 of the book of Joel. If we will read from chapter verse 1 to 2. 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So chapter 3 begins with a promise. If you know the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is utter destruction. And there's a call for repentance as we already established it. And then when he begins chapter 3, he is talking about a future time. He is talking, saying, the Lord will bring back the people, the captives of Judah, back to Jerusalem. He begins with that promise, and then verse 2, he goes on to proclaim what will happen to the nations around. And he says in verse 2, I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into, I will enter into judgment with them thereon, account of, on account of my, come on, on account of my heritage, uh, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided my land. You know, so the first thing that we are seeing here is the judgment on the nations that comes on the entire nation. Now, when you read only chapter 1 and 2, you will be disappointed because you will think God is being very hard on Israel. Or Judah, I will use that synonymously. Please understand, I'm referring to Israel as a whole nation, the northern and the southern put together. He is, he is, you will think that God is being very hard on the nation of Israel. But chapter 3 lets Israel know something more. He is saying, hey listen, the standards I apply are not just for you, but it's also for the nations around. In verse 4, in fact, he goes on to quote the nation's names. He says, indeed, what have you done with me? Tyre and Sidon and the coasts of Felicia. So he's addressing to the entire region of Felicia and he's naming even Tyre and Sidon as the, as the names of some countries. And verse 12, please. 
In verse 12, it says, Let all nations, let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, I'm not going to look at what is the valley of Jehoshaphat, where it is physically, etc. Enough to say that valley of Jehoshaphat represents to us as a place of judgment. A place where God will call the nations into accountability. A place where the nations will not have an excuse. Like Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, by looking at the creation of God, the nations know that there is God. They have no, no excuse to give why they cannot live godly life. And he is calling them into judgment. And he is saying, this is what, in verse 19, he goes on to name Edom and Egypt. What does this show to us as believers? What did it mean to Israel when they heard about this judgment prophecy? Firstly, Israel felt that they were abandoned because of all constantly being oppressed and ill-treated by all these nations. You know, Assyria would attack, Egypt would attack, Babylon would attack, Midianites would attack, the Philistines would attack. They were constantly under attack from the enemy. And Israel always felt they were the underdogs. Except the period of David and Solomon, which is called as the golden era during for Israel, the rest of the time they've constantly been under oppression. And they felt so abandoned that God is not helping them. And in the midst of this is when God comes and he gives them a promise saying, Hey, listen. Don't just look at the current situation. It is already established in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that it is your sins that led you this far. But I'm not going to leave you there. And verse 1 says, I will bring back the captives from Judah back to Jerusalem. He gives them a hope. And then he goes on to say, don't think that the nations who oppress you will go scot-free. They are also going to be called into judgment. They are not going to go scot-free. And he recalls to the nations all the sins the nations have done. And then he says, they will be punished in the same way that Judah, it was done to Judah and to Israel. And secondly, we feel that Israel felt that the standards that God had set, it was only for them and it belonged to them. But what God was revealing is the law, the book of the law was with Israel, but the standard of it, ethics and the standard of morality that God expected was from all nations, for all nations. So he says, I will draw them into judgment. Now, how do we apply this for ourselves in today's time? That's a question. Whenever I read the word, I always ask myself, what does it mean for us now? What does it mean for me in my day-to-day -day living? What does it mean? And when we ask ourselves that question, and when we, when we look at it, you know, firstly, we need to understand that God is not a privatized God. Some of us Christians live with this notion like Israel and Judah did, that God belonged only to them. But we need to understand that the God is the God of the nation. He is the one who rules and reigns over the, all the earth. He is the one who's seated on the Most High Throne. He is still in control of everything that we see around. Your neighbor who is not a believer, God is still their God. Our nation that does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is still the God of our nation. The world around which we see the economical changes that are happening, the political shifts that are happening, God is still their God. Amen. 
And we need to understand, for some of us, you know, we think God belongs only to the church. Yes, we enjoy our relationship with God, but it's not as if to say, I was truly God. Some of us think it is, but we need to understand when we look around in our neighborhood and in our nation that God is still the God of the entire nation. And God is the God of those who believe, and God is the God of those who do not believe. And He still reigns, and He still rules. Especially when persecution is increasing around the world. We sometimes may feel like how Israel felt, being, being oppressed constantly. You know, when I think of it, how big was the early church? About 3,000 people. How big was the Roman Empire? They said all roads lead to Rome. But did you know, because of this minuscule 3,000 people, the entire Roman government were felt threatened? Are you surprised that the government is threatened today because of 3% of Christian population? It has been all through history that God comes forth for his minority people and he stands and says, I will fight on your behalf. We can take that encouragement to know that our God is the God of the nations, and He is the God who rules and reigns. Immaterial of who the government is, immaterial of who the leader is, God is still on the throne. That should give us the assurance to say, yes, Lord, we will trust in you. How do we respond to the persecution and the nations around us, those who do not believe? Our only call is to love them. Our only call is not to get bitter towards them, but to forgive them and to pray for them and to stand with them and say, Lord, but for your grace, I would have been there. And I want to pray that they will come to your knowledge, Lord. And that should be our response on the judgment on the nation. But believe me, we look at it a little more when we look at the day of the Lord and the judgment. But let's move on to verse 9. Call for battle. Call for battle. Verse 9 to 11. If you'll read this aloud with me. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, let the weak say, verse 11. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together around. Cause your mighty ones to get down. Go down there, O Lord. You know, verse uh, 9, if you can go back to verse 9, please. You know, when it says, proclaim among the nations, prepare for war, you know, this is, a, this is like a taunting to the nations. It's like, you know, God is saying, hey, hey, nations, come, come, come. Prepare for war, because I'm going to come to judge you. And he's saying, put your best foot forward. Get your mighty men. This prepare for war is not just for Israel. It's for the nations. And he's telling, hey, come on, prepare for war because I am going to judge you. He is taunting them and he is reminding them, saying, come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I am going to be judging you. And then he turns to Israel or Judah and he says in verse 10, he says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spear." Now, if you know, Israel is already oppressed. They're under the enemy's rule. And here they are doing nothing but agriculture. Their profession was agriculture. And God is saying, take those plowshares that you have. Beat them and make, forge them and make them swords. Take the pruning hooks and make them a spear. He is telling them to prepare for war. If you and me were in Israel, 
we would have told God, God, you must be joking. You're talking about fighting this mighty battle against these mighty countries that as far as our memory goes have oppressed us in one way or the other and they begin to begin to doubt and God anticipates this doubt within their heart. That's why he gives them this promise even before they ask. He says, let the weak say, I am strong. I have never fought a battle before, but let the weak say, I am strong. I don't have the sword and the spear. Let the weak say, I am strong. I don't have the wisdom to strategize for the battle. Let the weak say, I am strong. What a wonderful promise. We know when we have to face the nations, when we have to face the situations in our lives, very often we feel like how Israel felt. Weak, inadequate, not being able to fight the battles. I know many of us have said, enough Lord, enough, I cannot fight it anymore. God wants to bring this reminder to you. Let the weak say, I am strong. Encourage yourself to say, it is not with your strength that you will fight the battle. It is not with your ability that you will fight the battle. It is with the strength of the Lord. It was the ability of the Lord. You will see because it is not you, but it is the Lord who will fight the battle on your behalf. You know, when it comes to our battle, we need to understand this one thing. Let me illustrate this with the story of David and Goliath. Here was a battle raging between the Philistines and the Israelites. You remember the story? Saul was the king of Israel. They brought Goliath and said, anybody who can fight Goliath can win, win the battle. And there was a whole army behind Goliath here, and there was a whole army hiding behind Saul. And you know the story of how David came, and what did he do? He killed Goliath. After he killed Goliath, the Bible says, the army of Israel went after the army of the Philistines, and they continued to plunder them and fight. Now see, as far as Israel goes, the war was already won. The enemy was already slain. Their giant, the devil, is already put to death. He's already been made captive. His power is already removed. And what the Israel army is doing, is just going fighting those small battles, gathering the plunder. And that's true for us because our Lord Jesus Christ has already taken care of the victory on the cross of Calvary. He has already won the war for us. When we fight our battles on a day-to-day -day basis, what are we doing? We are enjoying the plunder of the victory that's already won. Victory that's already won. So our battles that we fight are not just to establish ourselves with our own strength. The battles that we fight are to say, we proclaim your victory, Lord, through this victory that I'm going to have. And the battle that we have is on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I liked it was... Uh, was uh, 11, please, the second part of it. You know, even when Joel is writing this, he's prophesying, even Joel feels a little fearful. God, are you sure Israel will fight the battle? Joel gets into a doubt. He sends a one-line prayer to God. You know what the one-line prayer is? Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. That's the only prayer there. Before that is prophecy, after that is prophecy. One verse. In fact, ESV says, bring down your warriors, Lord. It's almost like Joel is saying, Lord, I know Israel. I know how many plowshares they have and how many pruning hooks they have. They cannot do it on their own. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. And I tell you, there's nothing greater than prayer when it comes to winning the battles. It may be a one-liner. 
When we come to Amos, I will talk more about the one-line prayers because Amos has a lot of one-liners like this, which changes the destiny of nations because of one-line prayers. And you and me are not called just to pray for hours and if you're not able to do, when you're feeling weak in that office decision-making, when you're feeling weak in the midst of all the troubles you're going through in your family and God has given you a promise and you don't know how it will come to pass, one-liner, cause your armies, Lord, Cause your mighty ones to go down there, Lord. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Amazing. That's not the message. I digress a little. But I get excited when I see those one-line prayers. Let's go on. But as Christians, what do we understand when it comes to the call for battle today? Number one, we need to understand that we are constantly in battle. The victory is already won. But the enemy is trying to get you, constantly tries to gnaw into you, constantly try to take the ground from you. What do we do? We need to first understand that our Christian life is a battleground and it's not a playground. This is a quote from someone, not mine. It says, Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. We need to take our Christian life seriously. We are soldiers fighting a battle. Have you seen a soldier? Yes or no? Have you seen them getting entangled in the affairs of the civil people? No way. They remain where they are. Their disciplines are different. What they eat is different. What they do is different. They are, in fact, isolate themselves literally as the called out ones and they are ever ready for the battle. We as Christians are called to do that. Every temptation that you face on a daily basis is a battle. Every time you depend on the Lord and get that victory, you're moving step ahead in your growth in the Lord. Every temptation, every decision that you take, every choice that we make on a daily basis is a battle. When we are faced with those, we can confidently turn and say, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. Let the weak say, I am strong. Why don't you turn to somebody and say, I am weak, but I'm strong in the Lord. Do you mean it when you said, come on, say it with all gusto. I am weak, but I am strong. You know, I I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but as I was preparing, I was reminded of this. Long back, I think maybe two decades back, I was part of a small committee, and there was a senior, and we had a disagreement in our thought process and the way things have to be done. And I think emotions got a better of him. So he said, Phillips is foolish, He cannot handle these things. I was young, two decades back, you can imagine. I was so hurt. I almost gave up on ministry. I went back home and I told the Lord, if you don't speak to me, I will not continue in ministry. And that morning, my quiet time passage was from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is what it said. Verse 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Guess what? I said, praise you, Lord, I'm a fool. (laughs) Praise you, Lord, I am weak. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the weaker I am, the stronger I stand because of the strength of the Lord that gets fulfilled through me. Amen. If you are sitting here saying, I am weak, my friends, I want you to encourage yourself. These battles that we fight are small battles. The victory of the big war is already won. And we got to encourage ourselves saying, Lord, it's not me, but your strength that will fight on my behalf and we will still have the victory. Let's move on to verse 18. 
where we talk about the blessings. Very quickly, I'll just read this and then we can go ahead. But I will, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with honey, hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacia. God is reminding again through a prophetic word through Joel. You remember chapter 1? The locusts left nothing. Devastation. Total. Chapter 3. Abundant blessing. It's just flowing and flowing and flowing. Mountains flowing with milk. Wine and water. No lack of anything. Dripping. You know the words used are, the adjectives are so rich. To say, what is the kind of blessings that God is going to bring? You know, when you watch a movie, have you watched suspense movies? Now, that's not a question you ask from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And I know you're hesitant to put up your hand. If you watch a suspense movie, you don't know what's coming. You're sitting at the edge of the seat, right? Your stomach muscles are tight and everything, you know, is really... You're wondering what will happen, what will happen. And these soap serials make it worse. You have to wait for one more week. Real suspense. But imagine you knew the end of the story already. Would you be tensed? Ha, come on, it's okay. The hero is going to win anyway. You'll just be cool about it. My friends, that's the same with us. What God is giving us a picture in Joel chapter 3 is the picture of the end. Because he's a God who knows the end from the very beginning. And he's giving us that glorious picture so that we will look at that and say, what I am going through is nothing compared to the blessings that I'm going to get in the Lord. Amen? What a, what, a, what, a, what a beautiful thing to know where our end will be and what the end is going to be. And it's going to be glorious. Let's move on to Joel chapter 3. Same chapter was 14 and 16. I want to now move into this theme of the day of the Lord. The reason I want to dwell a little more here is because if you read through the minor prophets and some of the major prophets too, one of the themes that you will see repeated constantly is the day of the Lord. And we need to understand what this day of the Lord is. So I thought I'll expound a little bit more on that today so that we know the context. And also we're going to conclude by saying, what does it mean for us in the New Testament? How does it apply to us? Let's read verse 14. It says, multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then it goes on, verse 15. The sun and moon will grow dark, the stars will diminish their brightness, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. <clears throat> you know, when it comes to day of the Lord, whenever you speak about the day of the Lord, many Christians will always project their thoughts to the book of Revelation. Correct? And we think of the battle of the Armageddon when Jesus Christ will come, he will set his foot here on the earth and he will defeat the enemy. And many of us, when we read the book of Revelation, we always tend to look at the beast more than Christ. Oh, I will not read because 666 is there. But if you read verse 1, it says, this is the book of revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the beast. It's the revelation of the book of Jesus Christ. So we get to read it in that context for us to understand. You know, what is this day of the Lord? 
the day of the Lord, as for the Old Testament writers, it was always when God intervened on the affairs of the earth. When the God of the heaven intervened on the affairs of the earth. The first one started when the Tower of Babel happened. When nations came together and they wanted to build the highest tower, God said, this is not the promise I gave to Adam. You needed to have scattered, but you're coming together. So he scattered them back again. That was the first intervention. From there on, you will read several, several occasions where God intervenes, which is called as the day of the Lord. And in the prophetic word, they will remind you about the day when God intervened in the past and how God will intervene in the future. So there is, a, there is a balance between the past and the future that's going to be there. And when you read the day of the Lord, that's what it means. And when you read the signs of the day of the Lord, we also see many of the things that are very close to what Jesus spoke about, the signs of the end times. Okay, we will read some of it very quickly. When we read, it says, The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people, the strength of His children. That's a beautiful promise that the Lord gives. So, day of the Lord, it has two sides of the coin. The first side, it's a day of wrath. It's a day when God will pour out His anger. When it says anger, it's not a reactive anger. It's a consequence of what the nations have failed to do. God is going to bring them to accountability for that. And that's the judgment that he's talking about. What does this signify? This wrath and destruction is signified by natural disaster, devastating military conquest, and supernatural calamity. Let's read Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 to 11. Let's look at some of these. Can we read that together? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to let the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, haughtiness of the terrible. Let's go on. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. Sun shall be darkened in the his, in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the, continue on, will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. That's what it says, continuing on. The same thought you will find in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 to 16. There are several references, if you can get all those references together in one slide. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 16 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasted greatly. Even the voice of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly, that the day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness a desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. So here... The prophets are constantly reminding the people, judgment is coming and the judgment is not a rosy picture. Judgment is not a rosy picture. It's going to be destructive. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be pain. In fact, you know, in the New Testament, you will read, people will go and cry and say, stones fall on us, we want to die. That's the kind of pain that that will be. People wouldn't want to live in those times. That will be the kind of tribulation that they will have. And the prophets are reminding, saying, hey, the day of the Lord is not a good picture to have. The day of the Lord is something that you need to dread. 
Why do they need to dread? Because they did not trust the Lord. But not for those who trust the Lord. The second side of the coin is that the day of the Lord is a day of blessing. A day of deliverance. A day when God himself will intervene. If you will read Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 4 to 14 to 15. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 14 to 15. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why should they rejoice? It goes on, the Lord has taken away thy judgment. He has cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. So here is a hope that the prophets are also bringing. There are several references that are there for this. We'll go back to Joel chapter 3 verse 17 itself. We will see the blessing. It says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy temple. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter. It says, but Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. It's talking about a forever rule. For I will acquit them of the guilt of the bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Verse 21, in another version, it says this, I will pardon those whom I have not pardoned before. And the Lord will dwell in Zion. It's talking about the rule and reign of God. So when it came to the timings of the day of the Lord, one I told you was in the past. Second, when they speak, is the near future that's coming. That means when Joel prophesied, he was speaking about the Assyrian army coming. So it was going to happen in their day and time. But another thing that they prophesy about the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord that's going to come, which is the end times. Eschatological, that's what the theologians will tell you. Eschatological predictions of what is going to happen in the end time. We are not going into all the detail. I'm just giving you a gist here to say that how God is saying that there are two sides of the day of the Lord. And that the difference is what we will see in the New Testament. If you are taking down notes on the blessings of the day of the Lord, just note down these references. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 to 6. Hosea chapter 2 verse 18 to 23. Amos chapter 9 verse 11. Micah chapter 4 verse 6 to 8. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 7. Zechariah 14 6 to 9. Isaiah 4 2 to 6. Hosea 2 18 to 23. Amos 9 11. Micah 4, 6 to 8, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 7, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 to 9. Let's move to the conclusion of what does the day of the Lord mean to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. Can we all read this together? It's very important we get this because if, if we don't get this, we will go back from here as a gloomy picture of the day of the Lord. It's very important. I want all of us to read this aloud. You know what loud means? You know what loud means? Loud. Let's read this. But concerning seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that the day of the Lord should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Can we read verse 9 please? Verse 9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Amen. What an assurance. See, firstly, when Paul is writing, I like the way he starts. He is assuming that people are living in anticipation of the Lord's coming. Because in what, chapter 4 of the same book, 1 Thessalonians, he's already spoken about the rapture. He's saying the church will be lifted up in the twinkling of an eye and then will come the day of the Lord like a thief in the night. People will be taken by surprise at the kind of destruction that comes. But I like what he says, but not for you. <laughs> not for you because you are the sons of the light. You belong to God. You are not of the night. You belong to the day. And he goes on to say that it is because of Jesus Christ. But you, brethren, and then he goes on in verse for verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And the, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So the hope that we have when we look ahead to the end time, the hope that we have when judgment will come on the face of the earth, what Paul is saying is, hey, listen, that destruction does not apply to you and me, because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can imagine if we are not in Jesus, what kind of a destruction it will be. And what a hope we have that our Lord will come and he will take us to be with him. What a hope, whether we are young, whether we are old, we do not know. If you see the prophetic book, they always said the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is coming hastily. When Paul writes, he says, the Lord is coming soon. And they live as if the day of the Lord or the, the Lord's return will happen during their lifetime. But what happens to us? Somehow as a church, we've lost sight of the Lord's coming. The first coming of Jesus Christ, Christmas, we celebrated like no man's business. We understand the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ. But we stopped there. But the early church was not so. Early church, everybody lived in anticipation of the Lord's coming as if the Lord is going to come in their generation. My friends, if the church can wake up to say the Lord will come in our generation, our lives would be transformed the way we live. We will not do the same things that we are doing. We will do things so differently. And when we say we have the hope the Lord will come, it's not, the, it's not our English meaning hope which says, you know, I hope it will rain. There's uncertainty in that hope. But when we say our hope is in the Lord, He will come to take us, it's 100% certain. As much as the sun will rise tomorrow, in the end times even the sun may not rise, but our Lord will still come to take us to be with Him. Amen. You see, you keep the end in the mind when you're starting and living today. When you have that end in mind, you will not live the same life we are living today. Amen. You know, C.S. Lewis said this, I will close this. With this quote and one story, C.S. Lewis said this, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought, of the most, thought most of the next world. Unquote. I quote it again. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. 
The reason we don't do most in this world is because we are not thinking much about the next world that there is to come. And if we can set our minds and our heart and our thoughts on the Lord and say, Lord, it's not just about my, my life here. You know, by God's grace, I travel a lot. I check into different hotels. I sometimes get the opportunity and privilege to get upgraded in some hotel. I, the hotel rooms are, wow, beautiful. It's big enough for us to play football sometimes when you're upgraded to a suite. It's so big and all the facilities. But I know that's not my home. I don't buy decorations and put it up in my hotel room. I don't buy things and try to keep my hotel room as the best. It's somebody else's. My home is back in Bangalore. I am buying from there something for my home here. My eyes are set on my home. And my friends, we as Christians need to live our lives like that. To say, yes, I'm on the face of the earth, yes. But God is going to come to take me. And when he's going to take, come to take me, I'm not going to be the same. In the twinkling of an eye, I will be transformed. And I will be with him forever and ever. Amen. Are you excited about the Lord's coming? Let's, let's pray and say, Lord, ignite within me this passion, Lord, that I will live in anticipation of your coming moment by moment. Pray for yourself. Pray for your neighbor. Say, Lord, help me. If I have, Lord, got lost in the fog of the things of this world, help me to keep my eyes on that shore, to keep my eyes, Lord, when you will come and you will take me to be with you. And that's my eternal home. And to be with you, Lord, is much more than anything else that we can have. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.